what's going on. This is Justin, your host here at Embodied. We are joined again this week by Fanon Kavleski. She is an educator. Um, she was formerly the coordinator of the African American Research Center at Cal State University Fullerton. She's moved on to bigger and better things since then. And uh, we just get to talk more about the work she does on campus and uh, what she, what her heart is for students and issues of identity in public education. Um, thank you for listening. Um, if you want to find out more about the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at, at @embodiedcast. If you have questions, comments, concerns, feel free to shoot us an email at embodiedcast@gmail.com. And yeah, thanks for listening. And so as you, as you look at your work now as an educator, um, I'm, you know, I'm also, as you know, I'm also an educator, um, education, especially public education can be very secular. Um, and so what role have you seen your spirituality playing? I know you talked about it, you know, um, as an RA, but now as a student affairs professional, um, what role does education play? Because I know you do a lot of work with identity, specifically mm -hmm. your black African-American woman and gender and sexual orientation, all that, you know, all those identities. So mm -hmm. is there space in your work for your spirituality? Mm -hmm. um, I think it, a lot of what being in student affairs is, is a lot of sharing your story and experiences. And I think that I oftentimes use that as an avenue to share about how I feel a very deep sense of purpose and um, that what I've gone through in the past has resulted in where I am today. I feel like my life has gone in a full circle because of God. And I think that I use opportunities when I'm talking about challenges, like with a student about challenges they're going through, about challenges I've been through and how faith has played a huge part in my ability to get through it and also to be able to reflect back on why there was a purpose in that challenge um and i also think i've recognized that working at the institution i'm at now students are a lot more open about their faith um and their spirituality than i've seen on other college campuses i haven't figured out why that is yet but um i also get the opportunity to create like we have a prayer space in our center and um, I think that that's opened up a lot of ways to have conversations across different faiths um, because our space is open to people who identify as any, well, anything, but it's mostly used by folks who practice Christianity and Islam. And we have copies of the Quran and the Bible there. And um, I've never really seen a space like that before on a college campus um, within an identity-based center. I think so that has been an interesting conversation, particularly with what's happening nationally right now and what has happened in college campuses more recently. Um, and so th that's been a kind of an exciting thing to be a part of. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your work and what you do and if you feel comfortable where you do it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I run an African-American resource center. Um as part of the diversity initiatives of a university and part of what i do is create a sense of community and a space for talking um, about and processing identity and identity development and um, how that might be challenging because of um, campus dem demographics or um, societal kind of assumptions and stereotypes and 
I think most, uh, I think this was in the fall. Um, oh gosh, what was happening in the fall? Why am I going blank? Um, there was a, a time where, oh, I, I mean, yeah, Donald Trump uh, was making. He, he literally comes up in every single interview. This is like, <laughs> this is how he stays in the game. Yeah. Because like, he always comes up, but continue. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I think so, like Islamophobia. Um, issues right and then the shooting in san bernardino coming up and um our department trying to be more intentional with how we're talking about and making space to have conversations about what islamophobia is and therefore how like the um kind of the rhetoric of islamophobia affecting our students and how they navigate the campus and were there specific incidents that students were kind of like coming in and telling you about yeah, I think the biggest just like, why did we do that as a campus moment was um, when our campus newspaper put the idea, uh, ID card of a former student who was involved in the San Bernardino shooting. What? Yeah, on the front page, just like covering the entire uh, top fold and students being very triggered by that because, I mean, he was an online student and like, you know, so like what was the relevance of putting his ID and like really feeding into this fear tactic and um, students having to hear the commentary students were making in reaction to the newspaper, like, oh my gosh, their Muslims are everywhere. Like you know? as they're reading it in the quad or whatever. Yeah, or in the classroom and students hmm. feeling very unsafe because of that or just like feeling tension, mm -hmm, right? And mm -hmm. how do we create space for students to have the conversation to be able to process that, you know, um, and to do it in a way that's safe and to do it in a way where like, I mean, we had to open up more spaces on campus as safe prayer space because students didn't want to go to the designated space with fear of like students coming in to be able to like just be angry and yell at them. Like it did that happen to some students? Um, not that I know of, um, and I think it's because our campus was able to kind of get together and be proactive about sending a notice out to what spaces were now going to be designated as additional safe spaces, and um, we made available a couple of um, opportunities to have explicit conversations about Islamophobia and how students were feeling targeted by that, whether it be by faculty or by students or staff, um, for that matter, and I think that... Um, because the campus was able to make a stance and say that they were not going to deal with um, any type of ignorance and bigotry and just like disrespect. Uh, I think that that might have kept people who may have tried to do something from doing it. So this is something that um, comes up a lot in these conversations I have about um, safe spaces is that they infringe on free speech of those who want to say Islamic phobic things. And so how do you navigate those types of comments? Because I'm sure you're hearing those from on a bunch of different issues, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's race, whether it's, I know you were just doing some work with uh, same sex bathrooms. And so how do you navigate that as a student affairs um, person? Mm -hmm. I think that, um, because the entire campus is supposed to be this, um, place where free speech can be practiced right like that having safe spaces is important to equip the students who are typically targets of 
uh, ignorance, uh, to be able to feel regrounded and um, validated so that they can um, be able to deal with kind of the targeting that they get outside of that space. So I, and I also think that like contrary to um, popular belief that safe spaces are great spaces to have conversations across difference of thoughts and perspectives. And I mm. think um, it just, uh, there's some community agreements about how that will be happening productively and respectfully um, rather than uh, this assumption that, that that's not allowed in the space. Yeah. So as somebody who facilitates those kinds of conversations, what kind of uh, things do you look for uh, in terms of creating safe spaces that also can handle difficult conversations? Mm -hmm. I think that um, being able to stay very straightforward, that we're all products of the socialization um, that is American socialization and that we are taught certain things through that process. And this is an opportunity for us to kind of think through and engage in conversation and challenge some of those assumptions or socializations and ideologies in a way that um, we're not blaming anybody for having those perspectives. We're stating it as a product of how we've been a, a part of this culture um, and that what we're asking is that we all hear each other out and then understand that it's a process, right? Like where I am in my understanding of the world now is so different from where I was 10 years ago, right? And it's because I had spaces that allowed me to think through things um, and that that's what we're providing, a safe space for us to think through things and to challenge each other and the assumptions that we carry. Yeah, what's the most challenging moment you've ever had in a conversation on campus like this? Um, that didn't necessarily happen in a safe space? Yeah, either way, yeah. Okay, um, I think one of my most challenging experiences this year has been um, because our campus um, is a public institution and free speech is respected. Um, I had a, a opportunity or requirement, I guess, to maintain uh, the respect of an event that was happening around Palestine. And I have my own views of what's happening in Palestine and who's in the wrong and how things should be handled. And um, I was on the clock, right? So I'm representing the institution. And uh, we had a student come and just like scream really just ignorant things and um, was being so disruptive and very disrespectful, but wasn't violating any free speech policies. And I think that um, I had to remember like that I wasn't a student in the situation, that I was a staff member and I couldn't react the way I would have liked to react in terms of questioning a lot of things or giving um, this gentleman some facts versus um, what he was kind of yelling and screaming at people um, and then realizing that my role was to make sure that that student wasn't so disruptive that it didn't allow for the event to continue, but at the same time to make sure that those students on the receiving end didn't feel threatened. Um, and I think it was a hard position to be in because I felt like I, I wish I could have been more aggressive in the situation yeah. and handling it, but um, I was really proud of how the students were able to handle it in terms hmm. of like, you know what, you're just saying a bunch of things that you've heard 
um, and nothing that you've done research for yourself because you're basically just reiterating or regurgitating a lot of what you've heard. But I'm going to tell you fact and, and I'm going to encourage you to do your own research rather than um, and he was just screaming some very hateful things, but also just some deep um, assumptions and stereotypes around like all Palestinians are Muslims and all Muslims are terrorists and et cetera. And um, he made a fool of himself. And it was, I think, because of the way the students who were involved in um, Students for Justice in Palestine were able to handle the situation, all of those who were kind of standing around to watch uh, were able to see that students on the, on the Students for Justice in Palestine side had clearly um, done some research and understood the issues for what they were versus um, the kind of hate speech the other person was screaming at people. Yeah, yeah. And so that seems like it actually turned out pretty well, all things considered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, are there any other moments that are like super powerful moments or like, this is why I do this work? Um, uh, yeah, I think just seeing students, um, and where they are developmentally at the beginning of their journey and seeing them, um, kind of growing along the way and them realizing kind of their purpose, um, whether it be their purpose in the position that they're in or why they're at Cal State Fullerton, um, and other kind of things that are clicking for them and being a part of that, like, aha moment of the bigger picture um and and i think also just watching people handle situations of just um ignorance and being able to walk away dignified versus allowing that um, situation to make them feel inferior which is um, typically the purpose of those type of hateful comments um and showing being students being able to kind of show that they know how to handle those situations and that's not going to allow them to, um, yeah, that they're going to walk away dignified from those situations. Yeah. And so when they come into the center, um, is it usually because of kind of crisis or is it more like, oh, this is interesting or, you know, a little bit of both or what's usually the story behind how people come to you. Yeah, I think most of the students come because it's their home base. It's the place that they feel like they can be their full selves without any judgment. Um, I have students who share with me that they feel like they can't be their full selves outside of the center because they're always afraid of validating someone's stereotype of them just by them being themselves. And so it's kind of the place where they can take that off that kind of burden and responsibility and and be who they are um so i think that that's what most of the students come for um and i think also just a validation that you belong here and that you are ready for the day or ready for the challenge um, but i do get some students who come in because of issues that they're experiencing and want um, support handling the situation or just a space to process it um, and think about it and uh, to be validated, like, I felt like this type of way because of how someone treated me or spoke to me or made assumptions about me. And I just need some validation that that was okay for me to feel that way in that moment. And um, I think that that's been a very powerful thing to be like, yep, that was a microaggression. Like, you didn't deserve that or you're not reading too deep into it. That's that's what that was. Um, 
and I think just giving students the words um, to understand what they've know they've they've been experiencing. And also, like you said, validating it so that they don't think, oh, like that's just me being too sensitive mm-hmm. or something. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I, I feel like I have this conversation with uh, with friends, you know, who I don't always agree with, um, but kind of like, oh, microaggressions is going to be the end of the, you know, end of free speech and the end in political correct. That's like, you know, Donald Trump's one of his running posts is about, you know, free speech and political correctness. And so how do you educate the campus at large about these types of issues and how can, what are some tips to those of us who may be in spaces where people are kind of like really microaggressions? Like that's not a thing. Mm -hmm. You need to just like grow some tougher skin, Mm -hmm. but you're, you know, as you're, as they're saying this, they are microaggressing you, you know, in in your workspace or your family space, even sometimes Mm -hmm. if you, or LGBT or something like that. What, mm-hmm. what does it look like to kind of make, what, what do you tell your students to do and what can we learn from that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because of uh, where I'm situated at the campus, um, we get to do a lot of diversity training for students. And um, one of the things that we do at the very beginning of the year is work with our orientation and we actually get to do a session with the incoming freshmen And what we do is we ask them questions about um, what identity do they think about the most or what do they, um, which identity do they know the most about or don't know. And a lot of the students don't even realize that some identity categories are even identities, right? Like ability status or nationality or citizenship status or um, all of these things that they kind of just take for granted. And then being able to process for them like okay well that was your answer to what you think about the most and this is someone else's and so that is at the forefront of how they navigate the world and so when you make assumptions about that experience or what that might be you're sliding something that's very near and dear to someone and just as though like you wouldn't be so happy about the fact that like we talk a lot about religion during this activity and um we talk about how like you know, if you didn't get Christmas off and that's an important part of your religious belief and your spirituality, how would you feel, right? But we don't give students Eid off, right? Or other important holiday, religious holidays for folks. Um, and I don't think that students really even like, that doesn't even click for them. Like that that's a privilege that you have because of a certain identity you carry. Um, and so it, we do it with freshmen and so it's an interesting thing to see where people are at developmentally we have some students that are like oh my god you're so brilliant like come work for us in our department (laughs) um and then we have students who are just like what like what are you talking about i have a privilege because i carry this identity um and i think i've realized that like race is probably like the hardest thing for people to talk about yeah um i was just gonna ask what are the racial demos of the room usually um, mostly white, um, I think, and then um, API and Latino identified students. And then uh, if we're lucky, we'll have one or two black folks in the room. <laughs> Other than you. Yeah. <laughs> and so what does the conversation on race usually look like? Yeah, um, I think that for like, I think the, the um, question that is always like exactly the same is which identity do you think about the most? 
and um, every time I've done the activity, all the black students go to race. And then the others are kind of like, um, because of where I'm at, I think a lot of people go to class um, because we, uh, most of our students are first generation low income. And so that is, and we're in Orange County. So I think that people have some thoughts about their um, socioeconomic uh, status. Right. But I think um, even when we're thinking about maybe the intersections of race and citizenship status, for example, like people will go to, because we asked one of the questions is like, which identity do you feel most privileged by? And people feel very comfortable going to citizenship um, and not to race, right? Um, so explain that a little bit more. Yeah, so um, yeah, during the activity, we asked like, okay, we have nine different identity categories during the activity. And so we'll ask like, which identity do you feel most privileged by in society? And I think that if people were being real with themselves, they would go to race. Um, but because citizenship is a little easier for folks to talk about, like, oh, I was just like lucky to be born into this. This and is white folks talking? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, so I think that they'll go there and they'll share, right? But if we challenge them to think about, well, what maybe would have been your second uh, most privileged identity to kind of help them understand that they're very racially privileged, um, they're, they just don't feel comfortable identifying that as something that is true to their experience. Um, and I think that that's probably one of the things that we wish we can do more on, but we also acknowledge that they're first year students and maybe they're just not developmentally there yet. Um, and I think it's about our department being um, a, a department that should create spaces to challenge students to think about that during their time there. Um, and not to just kind of allow them to opt out of that conversation. Do you, do you think many students want to opt out? Mm -hmm. um, higher education research also shows us or tells us that um, white students want to have racial conversations organically. They want it to just come up. Um, whereas students of color typically want it to be organized and to create a space that it happens intentionally. Um, and I think that most colleges are organized around it. If it happens organically, great, but we're not going to hold you accountable to having that conversation. So like they want Mizzou to happen. <laughs> is that kind of, is that yeah. organic? Is that what they mean by organic? I or Yeah, I don't know. Like I, what would, how would it happen organically? Right. If we're not, if we're, if we're real about the way that society is organized, you know, mm -hmm. um, and how uh, higher education is organized. And I, I think mm -hmm. we're in denial of that if we think that things are going to happen organic. Like people are organically going to work across difference and have really meaningful conversations and that it wouldn't be important for a faculty or staff member to be engaged in facilitating a productive conversation. Well, it seems like what happens organically is like, what you mentioned about the card being posted across the front half of the newspaper mm -hmm. or the person coming up and saying all these things about Palestinians, you know, like yep. that's what happens organically because yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of the soil that we've been raised in. Mm -hmm. And so uh, are, do you get a lot of pushback from uh, people being like, we don't need diversity training for staff or what's that look like for your, for your, for your department? I think that, um, 
I think I'm actually been more surprised um, by this campus because I feel like people are on, I think, the same page about wanting it to happen, but having some real conversations about what challenges exist uh, to making it happen, right? Like, so wanting faculty to be required to go through diversity training um, and then recognizing that faculty maybe wouldn't be so happy about it being mandated or can we legally mandate it right um and i think on other campuses i've worked on um that has been hasn't been the case i think that is more like there are some people who can understand why it's important to engage in these conversations or make it a requirement of someone's experience faculty staff or student um, and a majority of people are just like, I don't really understand why this is of value. So I've been pleasantly surprised by where I'm at right now. Hmm. So for those folks who aren't involved in the academy, like, or aren't involved in higher education, what can they do to kind of, you know, push institutions to be more uh, accountable and more open to having this type of education so that when students do come in, they don't keep having the same types of negative experiences with faculty or other students or uh, even administration and going through the logistics of navigating the system, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. What are some things that y'all are trying to put forward um, that to kind of curb that? Mm -hmm. I think like one of the things is that there is a large push right now in K-12 to embed ethnic studies into the curriculum. And I think um, as taxpayers and as active citizens, it's important for us to be on board with those policy changes and that advocacy work, um, because I think that um, seeing that happen on the K-12 is only going to require that we are continuing those conversations in higher education. Um, I think it's also important to know like what's happening on the even if you're not working in the academy to know what what issues are existing in your local campus, because um, I think a lot of students are advocating for things. And I think they assume that the local community wouldn't be on board with supporting those efforts of moving things forward. And I think engaging. Um, I can think of some local colleges right now that are working towards like uh, diversity requirements as part of general education graduation requirements. Um, hiring more faculty of color, hiring faculty who can speak to these issues, right, rather than having a really small ethnic studies department, and that's not very well supported, and so... It's all adjuncts. Yeah, exactly, um, and right now we're seeing a lot of conversations around adjunct faculty in uh, the CSU system, right, and so how, as taxpayers whose money is then going to run these schools, are we... Um, holding the institutions accountable to the ways in which the, the campus should be um, serving the state, right? And being um, a public good uh, for everyone to be able to benefit from and for our society to benefit from. Yeah, and so it sounds like even one of the ways that if I weren't involved at all, I could get involved is either looking into my K-12 system and seeing if they are, uh, you know, even close to you know, having an ethnic studies program, but also getting involved with the BSU or contacting the like African American Resource Center on campus and just saying, hey, how can I help? How can I kind of, you know, do you need me to write a letter? Do you need me to talk, you know, come mm -hmm. and talk or, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's a big thing too that I found is that it's always helpful to have people come back 
you know, and tell their stories and mm-hmm. share their experiences, you know, because students kind of, they get tired of hearing us talk, you mm-hmm. know, and so it's good to have people from even outside the, you know, the sphere of the, the academy yeah. come in and say, yeah, I know it's tough. This is what I experienced and this is how I got through it, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. And uh, I think also for folks maybe who come from very privileged backgrounds who now have um, in their career or just being out in the quote unquote real world have recognized how valuable maybe those conversations would have been had they had them earlier. Mm. I think it's important to go back um, as like an active alum and being able to uh, share those experiences and realizations with students because I think students developmentally maybe are not in a place where they can understand how understanding their identities and being able to work across difference and be able to question and think critically about things um, isn't a part of their experience. But if they can hear from someone who maybe was in their um, shoes at some point and who can recognize how valuable that is and hearing that from them directly, I think could have a huge impact. Yeah, yeah. And so as you kind of work with students and then also process through your own story, um, what practices of healing have you learned and that have you passed on to the students that you work with? You talked a little bit about uh, trauma that you experienced um, and working with a student who's also been through trauma. Mm-hmm. And so we want to name and recognize that a lot of this work, whether it's social justice, whether it's uh, one of my teachers, Yardena Peacock, always talks about how this work, social justice work is a lot of trauma work. You're dealing with a lot of trauma, Mm -hmm. whether it's shootings or, you know, the Flint water crisis or, Mm -hmm. you know, the things that you were talking about, about being triggered by a newspaper. Um, And so what are some of the practices that you have found that kind of center healing and um, kind of help you get self-care going Mm -hmm. in your life? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, one of the things is like being able to remember um, the issues on a larger scale, because I think that sometimes you get caught up in like how the issues are presenting itself um, on a college campus, for example. Yeah. Can you give us an example of a specific thing that would play that out? Mm hmm. Um, I think just like, for example, microaggressions or racial tension that is existing on a college campus. Right. So like a student having a faculty member um, equate um, homicide uh, as a former police officer to additional work hours and therefore better presence for their child, right? Um, And having a student who's like lost family members to homicide, having to hear that in the classroom and then needing a space to process that. um, I think that like in that moment, a student, I'm helping the student get through this particular situation right and i think that that could be emotionally very draining right um but if i can take a couple of steps back and then go back to understanding the ways in which our society and system is structured um it helps me recognize that i like i'm helping a student advocate for themselves and get through this thing that then is going to help them have this critical lens Um, once they leave from here. And I think that that's really encouraging to me. Um, I think the other thing is like for, I think um, like celebrating the like moments where you get to be fully human. And um, there's uh, a poet recently um, was talking in between, I can't remember the poet's name, but speaking in between some of his pieces. And he was talking about how like sometimes as oppressed people's 
um, the like best way of resisting is to be fully human. And I think just like re remembering like in the moment of just like dancing and enjoying the moment or a joke a student said and um, that those moments of just like being human and not worrying about just the way the world is designed against you. Th those moments are such uh, just joyful moments. I think that that really helps me. Um, and I think just surrounding myself with people who get the world for what it really is um, and then who can validate me of like, okay, I wasn't tripping when I saw that, like, or felt that way. And, um, and I think for me, like, b working towards social justice has always been uh, a site of, like, love and beauty and joy and, like, family, right? And I think I'm very encouraged by, like, seeing where some of my, like, best comrades in the struggle are now and, and what they're able to do, I think, um, how they're equipped to continue the struggle in different avenues. Um, I think that that's such a beautiful thing. And right, so to, for me to like remember that I'm a part of a larger network of people who are doing this work, I think is um, what kind of gets you up and going every day. Yeah, yeah. And so um, what does your spiritual practice look like these days? Um, I think a lot of journaling and reminding myself like, how certain scripture um, is fulfilled, like being presented in my current life. And um, I think also just like talking through purpose with m mostly my brother, Bimnet, um, with faith, right? Um, right, right. <laughs> uh, he really helps me remember like the grand scheme of things and um, just being able to reflect to me, back to me, like how he sees God working in my life, um, that sometimes you can't see, well, I can't see for myself. And, um, I think my, right now, as challenging as things have been and are, I think recognizing that I'm in the job and the role, um, that I desperately needed when I was a college student and just seeing that as a full circle and recognizing that there's like a deep, um, intentionality in that. And, um, I think like me being able to kind of document um, how like that day I felt like I was living my purpose has really helped me maintain my sense of like calling and purpose in the world. Yeah. And as you reflect on your spiritual practice, do you feel like you can be your full self within your spiritual tradition as you experienced it growing up or as you currently experience it now? Mm, um, I actually like don't practice um, like my parents are Orthodox and so I don't I go to a non-denominational church mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and I think that I uh, I can appreciate and I love the beauty of how my parents practice but I don't practice that way for myself. Um, I still go to like all of the traditional holidays and um, experiences, but um, that hasn't been how I chose to like show up in my spirituality. Um, but I do like it's it's weird because I, I still like really enjoy going to church with my parents, even though I don't know what they're saying hmm. and and being able to kind of understand the feeling that is there and just like the 
just a deep um, emotional connection that I hear with like the women um, singing certain songs and um, and also now recognizing the root of some of the words and therefore understanding a little bit of what they're saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I've been able to appreciate how they choose to live out their spirituality while also defining that for myself. Yeah. What drew you to a non-denominational church? Um, well, in San Diego, I started going to a church because of a, f- a friend referring me to it and it being more like a Bible study and me finally feeling like, okay, I'm going to church and I'm actually learning and understanding um, versus like going and sitting because it was required of me. And so, um, and I think the church that I was going to was the Rock Church in San Diego and feeling like I was having um, an emotional response to um, the experience of being in church and singing worship and And I think acknowledging that I think spirituality is about an emotional connection to the person in the spirit who's created you and um, feeling that connection to that. And so um, I think that's probably why I've gone that way, um, because I felt differently in that space. Yeah. Do you do you attend a church that's currently affirming of LGBT folks? Um, I'm actually bouncing around since I just moved out here recently. Oh, yeah. um, and one of the reasons why I left one of the churches I was referred to was because I didn't feel like they uh, were aligned to my ideologies <laughs> and my understanding. How did you find that out? What was the thing that you're like? Mm. Um, I think that I don't know that it was explicit, but just like always making a point to say him and her when talking about religion and um and i don't think i mean I, I went with my roommates and i don't think that they caught on to that but it made me feel some type of way and so i was just like okay well, i won't be going back to this church with you all was it a big church or no oh. yeah maybe i mean i guess it would be big it had like maybe 75 or so people i'm used to mega churches so it felt small to me but uh, yeah the rock is huge yeah yeah and uh, there and there was times i guess at the rock too that especially around prop eight situations where I was like, uh, let me not go to church today. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask next. Yeah. Um, do you find yourself looking more for a black church experience, traditional American black church experience, or more of a multicultural evangelical Christian experience? Or mm-hmm. where do you tend to find yourself feeling more comfortable? Yeah. Um, I feel more comfortable in a multicultural church um, because I think for me, I I also get very emotional when I see everyone singing the same worship song together and everyone coming from different walks of life. Um, And I think it reminds me that like we're all in this together and that we're all working towards making the for me, at least that moment reminds me that like, okay, I'm working towards making the world what God has created it to be. And I Mm. think it's important for the congregation to reflect the very different ways we're currently situated in the world. Yeah. Do you think that evangelical Christianity is showing up enough uh, along these political fronts that you mentioned earlier, Palestine, Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Um. I think that I have yet to find a church that I feel like is showing up at, at where 
where I feel like um, our God would and would want us to, and, and has designed us intently to do. Yeah, where does God want us to be? Um, in your in your estimation. Yeah, I think for sure showing up and speaking truth to the power that is uh, in our current society, and I think um, being very courageous and vocal about how. Uh, the world is just teaming up for the uh, against the underdog, and I don't think mm. that you know that's how uh, we're intended to be behaving. And I think that um, if not at least bringing up in the sermon, <laughs> people we should be showing up. I think in the streets and uh, in the classrooms and in other in other ways that I, I haven't seen yet. Yeah, um, as you know, like the history of Christianity in America is so connected to conservative, right-wing, uh, white, you know, Republican politics. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about politics and Christianity, uh, I hear you having a different history, you know, growing mm -hmm. up, seeing your dad being involved in this kind of like radical politics. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like you connect or have been affected by the American version of Christianity mm -hmm. in terms of politically. And um, I, cause I, I grew up in that. And so I have a hard time kind of seeing where I fit in, in that. Mm -hmm. And so when you go into a space, how do you navigate all those dynamics? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know. I think it's really, especially being uh an immigrant right but embodying being black in america right and then i think that there's a lot of conversations within the black community especially around activists who maybe aren't spiritual um bringing up the fact that like the bible and christianity was used to indoctrinate black people and to like maintain a structure of slavery and that hasn't been my reality and that's not the legacy I come from. And so mm. that's really hard for me to deal with. And I, and I remember like being really um, at some point in college, like being really afraid of bringing up my spirituality in black spaces because a lot of the activists I worked with had that mentality. Um, and I think just being fearful of like, okay, well then would I be ostracized from this space and, from work that I felt was very tied to my spirituality because of that very same spirituality. Yeah. So it's almost like you have to be, you know, secretive about your spiritual tradition and history. Mm -hmm. But most, I mean, I, I don't know if a lot of folks know this, but I mean, there's a very long tradition of Christianity in Africa in general, mm -hmm. you know, that's disconnected from, mm -hmm. you know, colonialism, Yep. which, you know, there's a there's there's saints that folks have never heard of mm -hmm. and you know in the traditional kind of roman catholic or eastern orthodox more yeah. eastern orthodox i think has a lot more connection to that but, yeah um yeah i mean and i think my ability to kind of um remove the realities of like colonialism and slavery and its connection to the bible versus like what it's been for my family and seeing that has allowed me to like maintain my spirituality even in spaces that are activist spaces. Yeah. So tell us like, how do you do that? What, cause for me, I don't have that experience. So mm -hmm. like, what, like, what is that experience like? Yeah. I mean, I think like 
um, even just like thinking about how education, right? Like there has been schooling and all of those things and how I feel like education is corrupted in America to maintain a certain ideology, right? And so the Bible for me existed, right? And then it was used and corrupted to maintain a certain ideology and mindset and use it as a tool um, for white supremacy and for capitalism and all of those things. And so I think for me, recognizing that things have been distorted to being able to be used for those in power, um, for them to maintain their power and, and acknowledging that there are things that existed prior to being corrupted and uh, that we have to rem remember what the origins of those things are. Hmm, yeah. And so for you and your family, do you get into conversations of politics and American politics and American Christianity? And does your family identify with American Christianity or do they identify more with this, this other tradition mm -hmm. um, that's closer to your heart? That's where you're from, you mm -hmm. know, and that doesn't have anything to do with this kind of, you know, 200 years of Puritan evangelical Christianity that, you know, many of us are familiar with. So when we hear Christian, that's, the only thing we can think of. Yeah. You know, we don't have the picture that you're you're painting. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. I think my parents and my older siblings who immigrated here very much identify as Orthodox. Um, I think um, those of us who were, like I was born here, and so I think I was raised in Orthodox tradition, um, but used kind of an American church to understand my spiritual and and faith like foundation um so i think for me it's like going to churches here is a tool for me to understand what my parents were trying to instill in me versus it being used to like um understand and dictate my understanding if that makes sense and i think that that's something my parents very much so dislike <laughs> about like my siblings and my cousins going to american churches because mm. they're so fearful of us being indoctrinated um, and it not being at the fount, like the origins of how they wanted to raise us. And mm -hmm. um, I think that that has been like an ongoing struggle, but I think trying to help our parents understand that like we go because it's in our language, like in the language we feel most comfortable with at this point in our lives. And it's for us to understand why you're as faithful as you are and as spiritual as you are. And not necessarily because we're going to believe everything that, is told in this mechanism mm -hmm. and that ability to like think critically about it and not just like take it all in and mm -hmm. take it all as being like fact. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's been something I've um, like my brothers and my dad and my sister-in-law is like sitting after a meal and like having the Bible out and like talking through things and it, that being accepted. Right. And I think that has been um, I think an important thing to witness um, in my uh, spiritual development is like okay this isn't something that like my parents have ever presented as like take it for what it is and you never have an opportunity to question or challenge hmm. um, but that we can engage in those conversations and we can understand it for um, how it is true to us and being able to like think through that and engage with it rather than just taking it for what you read yeah and as you think about um, moving forward what do you do you feel like you are fully spiritual in your activist circles or do you feel like you still kind of 
don't always, you know, show Mm -hmm. that card. Yeah, I think that I'm in a lot more mature activist circles now that I can, um, that we can all come at uh, the work and feel the common ground of what we're fighting for or what we're struggling towards and that we come to it with who we are and how we experience the world and our spirituality and that there's a lot more respect for that than I felt like in the past. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And a lot more space maybe mm-hmm. for that and mm-hmm. understanding. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so as we kind of wrap up here almost, um, are there any topics when it comes to race, gender, sexuality, or even spirituality that um, in your current space, wherever you are, or wherever you are personally as a person that you feel uncomfortable talking about? Like for me, you know, I, it's very easy for me to talk out of, about race it's a lot harder for me to talk about gender Mm -hmm. as a man Mm -hmm. and my maleness and what that does and how that works and how Mm -hmm. i abuse it and so that's just that's my example i usually give people who listen to the podcast are gonna be tired of hearing that (laughs) but that's just kind of where i'm at right now um what is there anything like that for you or uh yeah Mm -hmm. i think maybe spirituality actually because i think that because i was a comparative ethnic studies major and because of the work that I do, I get to talk about race and class and sexuality and um, different, differently abled statuses um, because I've been able to go through trainings of those things. And I feel very comfortable talking about those things in any space because I've read literature and I've engaged in critical conversations and um, I've been trained and I train others on those things. But like, um, I don't know that there's, there's been created a space in higher education where spirituality can really be talked about um, authentically and in meaningful ways. And that as a professional, you should feel comfortable being able to do that. Yeah. Cause some folks would say that it has no place mm-hmm. in the Academy. Mm-hmm. And have you heard that yourself? Um, not in my experience, because I think I have some reluctancy of like bringing it up. And so maybe if I did, then I would hear it, but I, I, have chosen not chosen necessarily but just like it hasn't presented itself as an opportunity to be able to engage um and so therefore i haven't gotten resistance but because i haven't tried to push it forward yeah yeah um and so the last question i like to ask is a bit abstract but most people usually like it um and the question is what does embodied spirituality mean to you hmm Embodied spirituality. I think um, for me, that means showing up and navigating the world um, from a perspective of humanity, because that's my spiritual understanding is that like, um, as humans, we are all equal and God has uh, great things intended for all of us. And I think it Embodying it means showing up to challenge any barrier and um, obstacle that is put in place because of man and our visions of the world um, that keep people from being able to treat each other and um, treat each other and engage in respectfully um, humane ways. Uh, Because I don't think that that's the reality right now. Um, And I think so showing up and acting and behaving and talking through things that 
um, allow us to be full humans all the time um, and challenging those things that don't allow us that. Yeah, um, that's perfect. Um, and what are some for folks out there who want to get to know more about some of the things that have influenced you or even uh, if they want to know more about um, the faith tradition you come from? What are some resources that um, folks can kind of look into to learn more about um, these different traditions of Christianity and even mm -hmm. um, some of the activist work that you do as well um, with the AARC? Mm -hmm. um, I think um, the California um, Council for Cultural Centers and, and Higher Education is a great way to really think through and see what cultural centers are doing in college campuses, particularly in California. Uh, especially with all the things going on. Um, and I think in terms of, um, I would, uh, I haven't gone on this myself, but there are um, trips that you can take to Ethiopia and Eritrea and be able to visit um, churches and hear from um, people in terms of how they um, kind of get trained to become priests and um, and I know I haven't done that, but uh, one of my best friends went to Ethiopia this past summer and um, she has always been a beautiful example for me in terms of faith and um, spiritual growth and hearing like what impact that had on her, I think, uh, makes me want to go on that trip uh, sooner rather than later. But I think that and um, talking to people and, and stepping into um an Orthodox church and engaging in conversation and seeing the practice for yourself and the beauty behind practices of how other people show up in their spirituality. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing to, to witness and to engage in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and so how can folks find out about the work that you do at the AARC or, you know, look you up if they want to have further conversation or if they're at, you know, Catholic Fullerton and they, mm -hmm. they want to contact you and kind of get to know you. Uh, how do they, how do they find you? Yeah. Um, I think that our website will go live, uh, soon, hopefully. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I, so I work at the African American Resource Center at Cal State Fullerton. And so if you stick that in, you'll get my contact information. And, um, I would love to talk to people about um, cultural centers, identity-based centers, identity conscious spaces, and why those practices are important in higher education and how those are deeply um, rooted in like leveling the playing field uh, for people and also acknowledging uh, the ways in which our society is structured um, very systemically against certain populations and how spaces like that are critical uh, if we're really, truly uh, going to stand for equality and equity. Yeah. And, and spirituality. You can yeah. talk about that too, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, are you okay with people coming and talking? Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I know the space is, you know, open to that. So, mm -hmm. um, well, thank you so much for, for coming out and having a conversation with us. Mm -hmm. Anything, any me. last things that you wanted to say that came up? Um, I think just the value of, uh, sharing your spiritual path and where you're at. Um, I think um, I have a faculty member, um, professor of mine, mentor, who um, puts the scripture he's focusing on that day uh, as his Facebook status. And most of the time it speaks to where I'm at too. And um, just um, I think I just putting yourself out there in those types of ways and how it can have a complete shift for people 
um, in terms of some positivity that uh, they need during some tough times. And I guess being and using our avenues to be able to to do that work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. And um, hopefully hopefully this won't be the last time we'll have to get into more detail on some of these things um, Mm -hmm. than we did today. Um, But thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, this is Justin again, and we want to thank you for listening. Uh, please check out our Twitter account, at EmbodiedCast. Uh, send us an email at EmbodiedCast.gmail.com. We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Embodied is produced by... Justin Campbell, with production assistance from Carlos Antonio Delgado, Jason Jenkins, Lisa Perry, and Philip Yaw Dumfey. So until next time, peace.